0: Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. Fish Eye Kombucha believes kombucha is best when local. Just as local culture is key to kombucha brewing, local culture is key to a successful business. Fish Eye Kombucha started operations in 2017, although the legend began brewing many moons before then. Fish Eye Kombucha operates in Fort Calhoun, Nebraska, and is Nebraska's first local kombucha brewing company. Fish Eye Kombucha can be purchased at a variety of spots around town, both on tap and in Growlers, at locations such as Growler USA, Infusion Brewing Company, Noli's, Modern Love, the T-Smith, and Vitality Bowls. And you can also find Fish Eye Kombucha at the Gifford Park neighborhood market, Friday nights, and the Omaha Farmers Market in Exarbon Village on Sunday mornings. Drink the good life. Drink the Fisheye kombucha and welcome back to riverside chats i am tom noblock we are back after a little hiatus sorry we did not have a show for you last week we are a weekly show not a bi-monthly show um but i was out of town so i'm sorry i went to yellowstone i had fun i saw some bears saw some elk um I saw some bison. Apparently, you don't call uh, the things in America are not buffalo. They're just bison. I didn't learn. I learned that. I I didn't learn that. I didn't learn that, anybody. Um, No, I learned that. I saw some animals. Got to just go out and be a part of nature, be part of the world, which is always great. Especially somebody like right now. When I record this show, uh, it's really exciting to have a studio. We do have a studio in BFF headquarters here at Studio 62. Uh, but it is a windowless room, and the air doesn't really circulate back here in the building. So, we, got, you know, we got candles, we got fans, we were, uh, you know, compensating for it in some ways. But there's definitely a difference between sitting in front of a computer, talking into a microphone, breathing in the stale air uh, eh, without windows. Uh, we have some lights in here, artificial light, you know, stale air, all that. Yeah, There's a big difference between that and being out and literally being in Yellowstone, where it's just... You know, so many miles of nature without fences where, you know, we're literally driving and a grizzly bear runs across the road, sprints across the road in front of the car in front of us. And it's like, oh, my goodness, this is a very different sort of experience than what you get uh, when I when I do this show. Not to complain about this show, but sometimes you need that. You need to get out. You need to do something different. Allegedly, it's good for your mental health to be in nature anyway. uh, And uh, that is increasingly hard to accomplish because we just destroy it. Uh, But I'm not here to rant about that today. That's not even what the show is. I know sometimes we've done that, um, and hopefully we'll continue to do that. But today is not really a show about the outdoors. It's not really a show about nature. In fact, it is a show about something that you've heard a decent amount, you know, from this show before. We've had a lot of people who make local movies on the show. Uh, But we haven't had somebody who's reached the level of success that Aaron Parks has. Aaron Parks has got to be sort of like the dream story of anybody who wants to get into the film industry properly from from Omaha anyway or from from the Midwest probably in general. He's somebody who comes from Fremont, made it, went out there, got all kinds of industry jobs, and not only has he done that, but he's come back and is starting to rebuild the industry here in Nebraska to make projects locally because unlike a lot of people who go out and make it and just abandon Nebraska, he didn't want to abandon his roots. And so today I've got him on the show to tell his story of how he got there, what were the hardships, what was it that made him want to do that in the first place? I don't know. Those of you who are from Nebraska know there's, you know, there's some degree of support for the arts, but a lot of people are kind of, you know, they treat it like the way, um, I don't know. I always get the sense when I talk about stuff that even like I, as somebody who's made four movies, when I talk about what I'm working on, it's still kind of like the way you talk about a little kid when they're like, I want to go to the moon. I want to be an astronaut. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe someday you will, sir, sir, sir. sir. I, I doubt they call the kids, sir. Probably son, son, like, let me, let me try that again. So it's like, you know, you're you're talking to, uh, you know, like a kid and the kid, you are like what do you want to do when you grow up, Jimmy? And Jimmy says, I want to be an astronaut. I want to go to the moon. I want to find aliens. And then you tell him like, oh, yeah, yeah. Good luck, sonny. Maybe. Who knows? It's a crazy world out there. You know, but it's not like, oh, well, I think you can do that. You know, It's, it's, it's like this magical, mystical journey that people say that they want to go on to be actually become part of the entertainment industry. And I think a lot of people don't actually know outside of this sort of like uh, the fantastical also element where it's like, I'm just going to make my thing and it's going to get discovered and then all the doors will open up for me. I think that's basically what everyone wants to have happen, but that is not really the way it generally works uh, for at least most people in the industry. So I think listening to Aaron today is a good opportunity for anybody who's interested in that, whether it's just for his story or to get ideas for their own story as they are starting out. Um... Before we get to that, though, uh, let me remind you, we are sponsored by Benson First Friday, which is now known as BFF. What started as Benson First Friday is now officially known as BFF. Same great people, same great organization, new name. This change will help BFF reach new communities as they continue to grow. BFF is dedicated to supporting the region's emerging and established artists by creating opportunity, exposure, and experiences that help them move forward while enriching the cultural competency of the greater Omaha area. BFF to the Arts. BFF to the community. BFF. So yeah, check out BFF. Check out Kombucha Brewing. Thank you to those of you supporting this show. If you also want to support this show, either as a a sponsor, email us. If you want to support us otherwise, though, we do have a Patreon page. So go to patreon.com slash Creative, and you'll find the page to donate. If you think this show is worth a dollar a month or something like that, there are tiers, there are various rewards. Please consider that. Helps us keep the show going. Helps us keep our windowless studio, uh, you know, with lights. It doesn't have fresh air, but it does have lights, and we'd like to keep them on. All right, enough rambling from me. Please enjoy my conversation today with Aaron Parks, and also check out the new movie he just produced, which is uh, in, It's being edited right now. It's called La Flamme Rouge. I really hope I'm saying that right. I asked him like six times to try to get that right, and I didn't write down any phonetic help for myself, but I believe it's called La Flamme Rouge. La Flamme Rouge. Rouge. Um, you can find it. Go to Aaron Park's IMDb page. You'll you'll be able to find it there. Uh, and uh, as the trailers come out, hopefully hopefully it's one of those trailers where it's like, coming soon, La Flamme Rouge. You know, so I so I you know know how to say it. But really exciting sounding project made right in Fremont. Did you know a movie just shot in Fremont? I don't know if you know or not, but uh, you probably don't know a whole lot of details. If anybody does know, it's Aaron Parks. So stay tuned. Listen to him talk about how he got to where he is and what that movie is that just filmed here. It's a great conversation. Great guy. Enjoy. When I hear myself talk, it doesn't sound like a radio voice to me, but, you know. What was, what was your radio voice? Do you have it still?
1: I had more of like a broadcasting voice. you know, cause Like I sports? Because, like the weather. Okay I was a really good weather man so I'd talk like this Hey here you go everybody it's a sunny day here in Lincoln Nebraska you know
0: so just the emphasis and like it being excited all the time yes kind of sound? Be, yep. mm-hmm. I hated that I don't know I can't I, I, it's hard for me to try to be excited or you know fake being excited.
1: Yes, I used to be better at it, but as I've gotten older, it's, yeah, it's it's harder, so.
0: <laughs> I mean, p- people want to see you be excited, I
1: think, but then maybe it's just something with age,
0: it's like, I don't care uh,
1: what you think of what my emotion is right now. Yeah, well, I think, too, like, in the film industry, you build up, for, like, those pitches and stuff like that, so you got to kind of save the excitement for in the room, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, you know, it's, you always want to get excited about your stuff, and. Right. But sometimes it's hard to pretend. Yeah. Well, so, wait, I mean, so you're from Nebraska, Wayne, Nebraska, is that right? I was born in Wayne. Uh, My parents were teachers at Laurel. What did they teach? Uh, My dad was, at that time, a PE teacher and an athletic director and a basketball coach. And my mom was teaching English. And then we moved for a year to Columbus, where my dad was the athletic director at Lakeview. And then ended up, he decided he hated that job and uh, want to be a basketball coach exclusively. So we went to Fremont when I was like three and grew up there, graduated, and um, my parents still live there. So, um,
0: so you had that Cartesian split in parents, though. It's like, you know, the body and the mind going on. You got an English teacher, you got, you
1: know, sports. Yeah, it was good. And, well, my dad, too, I think, was uh, kind of known as an X's and O's coach and sort of really heavy on the strategy and building offenses and defenses and stuff like that. So I think I got actually a lot of my creativity from him because he even was a person who doodled a lot. And, um, and then my mom was very much like the academic, you know, very, um uh, nose of the grindstone, t- I's and T's crossed, you know, the, you know, no typos, you know, uh, I don't know, can you, you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. Um, so that was kind of, so that would, but yeah, they were great, they were great parents to have. Cause they always encouraged me too to just kind of do what I wanted. And, You know, even until I was like 30, my dad would say, I have no idea what my son does, but, you know, I don't know. So, um, but we support him. So,
0: I mean, there's not a lot of people going into creative endeavors, I assume, where you're from, right? I mean, did many people go into anything in the entertainment industry?
1: Well, I think more than you think. You know, there's, I mean, there's some, I mean, the the guitarist from Mr. Mister went to Fremont High, um, and there's a lot of stories like that. Um, But yeah, it's sort of, you know, when you were, if you were good at school, there was kind of, are you going to be a doctor or a lawyer? Right. Yeah. It's the kind of question that you get in small town Nebraska, especially like in the 80s.
0: Even in Omaha, really? Oh, yes, yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: And so, um, yeah, so everybody, I you know, I just kind of always wanted to tell stories and write. I got really into writing fiction early. Like how and, early? Oh, I probably started writing oh, probably like 10 or 11, started writing like kind of you know, 30, 40 page, like, Ooh, wow, you know, like almost like, I don't want to say ripoffs, but like homages to like my favorite <laughs> Western or to, you know, I actually had a long time story that I was working on that was set in the four kingdoms and it was about dragons coming back to life. So kind of had to retool that one when I found out about game of Thrones. Um, but, <laughs> uh. But yeah, and I so
0: Was that like, did that start in school? I mean, did you have to like do an assignment where you wrote a story? Or where did you even figure out that you liked telling stories?
1: Yeah, I think it was like in fifth or sixth grade because we had to do this young authors competition. I I think that every school in the state did it. But I always, I don't know, I just decided I was gonna like write my own story. Something I thought that was funny. Yeah. And I wrote um, a, uh, it was a uh, spoof of Dragnet Called Magnet, and it took place in a refrigerator. And Joe Leftovers was the lead detective, and so I wrote this funny detective story where he had to go. The sandwich investigates the banana and all that kind of stuff. Spoofs are
0: uh, probably a good medium for that age. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I
1: think so, right? Because that's a lot of what cartoons are, right? Especially you know the funny ones. So and
0: everyone around you can get it, like they understand what you're trying to do. You don't have to be ambitious in the you know bigger way, right?
1: Of course, then I lost to the girl that you know wrote the perfectly crafted uh post tornado you know recovery story you know tearjerker total (laughs) tearjerker and she did a great job but i was like man that was too easy you know um but so then about then yeah then junior high i had some really good teachers that would encourage us to read you know the band books even you know um and then in high school uh there's a guy named Fred Robertson at Fremont who went on to Millard West, and he's is a debate coach. One of the best in the uh, yeah. yeah, one of the best in the Midwest. And so he really always challenged us, you know, especially us smart ass kids, you know, to kind of really, um, you know, not just rely on being clever, but actually work to get, you know, become better writers and you know better debaters and stuff like that. I mean, there's a reason that you know, you know he teaches people how to argue well and get across their point of views well. So. I mean, he had us read like Hunter S. Thompson in like the tenth grade.
0: How'd that? Well, how did that read in tenth grade? Did you like it?
1: It was pretty phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, it was like whoa. It was uh, it was the um, uh, Kentucky Derby is decadent and depra- depraved. Yeah. So, um, which is kind of funny because. Around in the circles, he's actually the one that got me involved in the Exarvin project. Oh, really? Okay. All the, the kind of funny things. Um, but yeah, then after college, or after that, I went to college and really looked hard at film school abroad, so to speak. And Were
0: you, I mean, were you, did you know you were moving toward film rather than writing fiction at that point, though?
1: Yeah, because I was kind of, I you know, I knew that I could write fiction. You know, I knew that I was, I felt like I was pretty good at it and knew how to do it. So film was something I'd never had exposure to. And kind of just also the technical stuff, learning how to cameras and lights and editing that stuff really intrigued me. And had you
0: played around with any of that?
1: Not really. I mean Did you know how
0: much of a headache that was going to be to kinda hell no, get a handle no, on hell that?
1: Hell no. No, God no. Um no, and I still don't like some things like lights and cameras. Like I just don't touch.
0: Oh, that I'm jealous. I wish I could get to that point.
1: Do you know what I mean? Where I just like, oh, this guy's better than me, so let's have him do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, So yeah, so I went to Lincoln because my parents were like, okay, you can go out of state, but you know, you got to pay for the extra, whatever it costs more than UNL. And so ended up, I applied to USC, Boston University, Texas, uh, got into a bunch of good schools and then kind of at the end of the day, did the math and got some scholarships down in Lincoln. So I went to UNL.
0: Your parents, did they... Try to push you in like the sense that maybe you'll teach film, or was it just like, yeah, go try to be a filmmaker?
1: Yeah, it was just try to go to be a filmmaker. Okay, you know what I mean, so there wasn't any, you know, and I think that's the great thing about having teachers as parents is that they do what they do because they love it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so there's never a consideration. You know, my dad would even curse. If I was like, well, if it wasn't for basketball, we'd be way richer. You know, because you know. He'd sell insurance or something, right? Um, but he so, has that passion. So yeah, he had the passion. You know what I mean? And basketball coaches they get paid like you're back then. They got paid like five thousand extra dollars a year for a second full time job, right? You no, know? so that was just always kind of there. And you know, I debated playing sports and stuff like that. Got recruited to a couple, you know, D three schools, Wesleyan, those type of schools. But I just really decided to not. I don't know. I just wanted to be a student and kind of you know see what I could do. So I got to Lincoln. And then I started out as a communications and uh, film studies major. This is where major. you.
0: This is where you did your radio stuff.
1: No, huh? this was uh, school. of Communications was uh, oh, what school is that? Is that arts and sciences? But it's in a different school from the J school. So, okay. Um, I took the first class in communications and got to the chapter about listening and hearing and the difference between them, and said this is not for me. Like, so, uh, but just too, just too, too dense. Yeah, it's, just, it's just like too basic. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, I get this already. And then film studies was great. Got in and took classes from uh, Dr. Wheeler-Dixon and Gwendolyn Foster. Um, and uh, then kind of, but then was looking around and, and ended up um, at the broadcasting school, uh, College Journalism of Mass Communications, because I wanted to get my hands on the cameras, the edit suites, all that kind of stuff. And so then I got in and learned radio and then TV production um, through that.
0: Were you? I mean, what kind of movies were you obsessed with at this point? Oh,
1: I mean, my favorite movies. I mean, I really grew up on like you know eighties action movies and stuff like that. But then also, you know, Clint Eastwood movies. Um, you know, I mean, Days to Confused is still one of my you know big touchstone movies. Um, was the coming of age stuff was, was the
0: like Richard Linklater stuff? I mean, a lot of I think a lot of people gravitate to that because it's like you get that sense. It's like I feel like I could figure out how to do that.
1: Well, I think too, I think that there's more like in the universal audience appeal because you can pick yourself out of that movie. Sure. Everybody's in that movie in some way or shape or form because like, he does a great job with those groups, and understand the groups, the high school interaction, all that kind of stuff. So, and it's so effortless, right? It's so, the interactions are so like organic that, and, and the plot too, I love teaching it in screenwriting because like what's the plot of Days of Confused?
0: You're asking me? Yeah. I haven't seen it in years. I'm not. I'm not the best person for it. I mean, but it's just a bunch of people living their lives, you know. Exactly. But the
1: catalyst is that like the the keg gets delivered too early at the party, right? So then they go look into the party at the Moon Tower. Yeah. So the whole plot is based on this sort of like really inane thing that you kind of forget about uh, what's driving the film, and so I think that's kind of a testament to like you know how well it's made. Because you're not focusing on that? Yeah, because it's not a conscious decision. It's not like, you know, in, you, you know, it's not like the Avengers or something or Independence Day where the aliens land, And you know?
0: Is that, I mean, do you like that because in some way the audience has trouble? Like, it's not like you can get ahead of a plot like that, you know? It's like with with Avengers, it's like, yeah, they're going to stop the bad guy, whatever. Like, I, I, can, I yeah. get it. I'm a little disengaged can because you I know you where Can stop it's going.
1: arguing and just become the Avengers? Like, you're going to become the Avengers. Right. The movie's called The Avengers. Like, stop arguing. You know? Just become <laughs> right. the Avengers, you know? Um So, yeah, but I think that it's, I think it actually shows a real storytelling skill, you know, and sort of the way that you forget about the camera, even in that movie. It's sort of that's, to be invisible like that as a filmmaker is like really, you know, kind of a special, you know, special deal.
0: Did you know that that's what you appreciated about that movie when you were younger, though? No, no, of course (laughs)
1: not. No, I, you know. This this is after two master's degrees and three <laughs> years of teaching. No, I didn't understand that. But that's also the thing that's cool when you learn in film school and screenwriting school is that sort of the subconscious stuff that a screenplay will do to the audience to get them to feel how you want them to feel or get scared or laugh whenever you want them to laugh. And it's kind of that's to me once I started to understand that, like it's, you know, screenwriting and storytelling got really fun. You know, right? And also too, just even, but you can figure it out you know because even before I went to film school when we made uh, the Wretched. In 2007, uh, here in Springfield, we shot that. Dan Iski directed it. You know, the best feeling in the world is when they jumped when they wanted to jump and laughed when you wanted to laugh in the theater. You know, it's like, oh, yes, we got that right. Right. You know, so, um, but yeah, anyway, back to the, I went to journalism school and then ended up trying to take classes at what became the Johnny Carson Film School. It was the very first uh, session of classes there in the film and new media Like, it had just started then? It had just started. I think it was the first or second year. um, And kind of, they had screenwriting, film production one, film production two, and then new media, which at that time was building websites, you know. Oh, okay. In 2003, so. What um, did a
0: website look like in 2003? It was pretty simple, right? I can't remember.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, I don't know, like, you know, Hotmail and Snood, and, you know, (laughs) that was kind of the the, the end of my uh, internet experience back then. But, um, but yeah, they were pretty basic. Yeah. A lot of Netscape. You know you know a lot of waiting for stuff to download, but but then so then I decided, but then I wanted to graduate on time, so I didn't wait around to actually have a film major because I wanted to switch colleges and stuff like that. So I ended up with broadcast journalism with an emphasis in history, English, which was film studies and creative writing, and then theater and film.
0: So, okay, so. All that did you know that that was moving toward like screenwriting as a career or was there was there a specific goal or was it just kind of like I want to land somewhere I think in these so. things So I
1: think so I think I always had that bent I mean the big thing was that when I when I met Lou Hunter Sharon Teo brought him to school and he was the first person that I'd ever met or ever heard talk cuz remember there were no podcasts there were no right. internet you know it's like half the good stuff that I went to film school to learn is now on the internet Right. You know what I mean? You can go to a good in the room website and get all the etiquette tips you need for how to pitch stuff. You know what I mean? And um, But Lou was the first person at that point that I talked to that A, knew what the heck he was talking about, and B, wasn't a jaded jerk so
0: like you could catch some of the optimism or the excitement yes. still okay. yes
1: he uh, to this day he's the most optimistic excited person ever you know last time I talked to him he's like gosh darn it Aaron why haven't you you know you should be bigger right now than you are you know like and he, so he like had this just kind of he roots for everybody and, and, and draws people in. it is like you know if you read his book you know every screenwriting book will sit there and tell you how hard it is but he like tells you how hard it is and it's like, okay now let's get started you know, And that's something that uh, I really gravitated towards. So I wanted to go to UCLA um, to graduate school. And so basically I wrote my first script the year after college and sent it to him. And he said, this is great. Um, I want you to write me three more of these and I'll help you get into UCLA. And I was like, what? Uh, okay. Um, what, I mean,
0: was that was that script something? Did you anticipate being able to make that movie and sort of sticking with it? Or did you know it was just oh, sort of sure. like. Sure. I okay. think you
1: always. I think you should. All, yeah. It's like, okay, we can go make this. And, you know, I could still go make that movie for forty grand or whatever now. I mean, back then you couldn't because of technology, right? right. I mean, this was still. You know, there weren't even digital cameras really for film for cinema cameras, right? So, but like um, if he's
0: telling you right, three more, it's kind of like you just have to do the work. You kind of the
1: point it. is the point is is everybody when you get to L.A. has a screenplay. Every dog walker, bus boy, bell boy, you know, there's nothing wrong with you know, you know, one of the guys from Nebraska. I know it's gotten super successful. Actually, got that way from. Being a valet at the W Hotel because he met everybody, and they liked him. That makes was, sense. Yeah, know. that's one way to do and it. So, um, but everybody's got a script, or every but no, hardly anybody has two or three scripts or four scripts. And so, once you get to that point, then that's a differentiating factor, you know. And so that was also too. He was angling me towards getting into UCLA, and what he also was telling me, which I didn't know at the time, was that they don't like kids right out of under they like people that are a little more seasoned. Like when I got to UCLA eventually I was twenty seven and I was definitely on the younger, you know, of my class of thirty, I was probably like the fifth or sixth the youngest.
0: And that's because like they want you to actually have lived a little bit, yes. have a little bit of life that you life can draw experience. from. Right. yes. Yeah.
1: If you start off being a writer and wanted to write movies and make movies and that's all you do, a lot of times you don't get that much life experience. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it was like the so I worked um, I, while I was doing that, I moved, I lived for a while in Lincoln, sold furniture, and then I moved to Omaha and sold furniture. Um, I actually lived in Elkhorn with a buddy that had built a spec house out there before it was cool to be in Elkhorn and, <laughs> um, and took classes at UNO, the writer's workshop there, which I, you know, uh, just finished teaching in and, um, as a just fiction workshop to get better. And, um, then also took the UCLA professional program online. Which was very interesting in 2003. How so? Uh, Well, I guess it was 2005, 2004 Okay. Well, it was just, it was a chat room, like an old internet chat room. And you, you know, have an exclamation point when you ask a question. You know, there's no video component to it. So it was just a whole text lecture. And that was where I learned what LOL meant. I thought my teacher was making fun of me, and he was actually laugh, you know laughing with me. So
0: like you couldn't tell what the LOL was. Aimed I thought at. like it meant like yawn or something. Oh, like, Whoa. <laughs> you know, or something like
1: that. But um, were you? I mean,
0: were you big into like IMDb message boards and some of those other places where everyone was talking about film?
1: No, I never really was. You know, I never really I, you know, I wrote for the school paper and uh, got some hate mail. On the, you know some of the first internet hate mail for the Daily Nebraskan.
0: How that? And, did you react well to that? Did you know? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: we did it on purpose. There's a guy named Andy Norman who uh, started here in Nebraska and now does the rabble mill down in Lincoln. Okay, and we kind of yeah we coordinated our articles because he was the skateboarder and I was the frat guy and we kind of you know both like but liberals but I could you know so we could kind of but st- so we could we we. <laughs> we wrote on purpose to provoke. Because okay, we yeah. knew that it was again it was the opinion column and there's I mean a bunch of great writers like, you know, uh, uh, I mean half the, the guys at the World Herald were there at that time, so like Dirk and Matt and Sarah, you know, Baker Hansen and wow, yeah. Uh, Neil Obermeyer was my editor. He was a great cartoonist and um, so that was kind of and that was a very fun thing to be a part of in college because we sort of had that you know, it was a big organization where I was, you know, there were us opinion guys who were like the edgy, cool guys who would just kind of come in and drop bombs on these articles. And then the, the sports guys would be huddled over their desk, you know, uh, kind of, you know, working on something. And then, you know, so it was kind of fun to see that operational put together as kind of, you know, mirrors a bigger production, like some of the stuff that I would see in TV later.
0: Did you, I mean, were you intentionally trying to diversify the type of writing you were doing? Was that, or was it just like, yeah, I can well, do this? Yeah, and
1: I looked and I looked. It was like, yeah, I can do this kind of stuff. I can do magazine writing. You know, I mean, because over the years I've written all sorts of stuff. I mean, I, uh, you know, you know, if you want to be a screenwriter, I mean, you have to spend thousands of hours doing it before you're ever gonna be good enough to get paid. Right. Just you know, what I mean, like you just have to. So yeah, working on magazines, worked on Media magazine here in Omaha for a while, and you know, did some of that. But the but the UCLA professional program was really. That's where I put a lot of my energy into because I wrote my third and fourth scripts there.
0: What were these scripts about? The first batch. First
1: of them? four scripts were the first one was uh, a comedy, trying to be. I was very into postmodernism at the time, uh, so a post like a postmodern sort of uh, Animal House. Okay. About a fraternity that's going to get shut down by insurance premiums because that's you know a lot was happening back then, and uh, you know sort of a. Yeah, just sort of along those kind of lines, and they got a rival frat they got to compete against. And there's what made that
0: one postmodern though. Like which which uh, part? What element? It was was very
1: self aware. Okay, very very self aware of the genre and just in the dialogue and like you know, kind of like you know, this yeah, they you know these guys hate us. We're frat guys. You know, we gotta push on. You know, we gotta help out. You know, it was just I don't know. It was I haven't read it in years. Did you have
0: specific models for that one? Like you know, film models, script models.
1: I mean, I wanted to do trying to think totally. I mean, I wanted to be like Animal House type plot, but tonally more like PCU probably. Okay. Yeah, and I so think
0: was postmodernism something that a lot of what you were writing was sort of moving toward?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was a big fan of those like John Barth and some of those like postmodern Authors, you know, kind of, you just start to discover Catcher in the Rye and go down that sure. rabbit hole. And
0: Are you a David Foster Wallace guy?
1: You know, I've never read David Foster Wallace. Oh wow, I okay. Need to he's
0: uh, it's it's a little bit of work, but uh, yeah, you know, yeah, if you're into postmodernism, you know. that's
1: okay. I mean, I've read Marquita Sot. I mean, so you, you know, can be. Yeah, I, I'm not so saying you can't maybe, do it. Yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. saying. You know. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and then my second one was sort of it's one that I actually will probably be the first one if, uh, I'll direct and want to do it here, which is sort of a, it's a dazed and confused kind of meets of uh, the big chill. Okay. Kind of what happens to a group of friends after a suicide occurs. And then this particular story takes place the summer. The suicide happens. They all go off to college. Some stay behind to you know, work real jobs in town. And they all come back together the next summer. And so there's the, the, the post-summer party for the kids below him, and then they kind of show up, the older guys, and, uh, you know, one of them is really struggling and kind of having his own existential crisis, and so he he's the main character, and then it's kind of him, I mean, basically working through his guilt. You know, he's got survivor's guilt because mm-hmm. he was his best friend. And
0: Is that one autobiographical? or is it, that-
1: You know, that one is, you know, um, there was a guy named Adam Weed who uh, was a sophomore, and he was the most popular guy, like, in the school. And he was the funniest guy. I grew up with him. There's a big group of us that we went to church together and stuff. And just the funniest guy ever, the sweetest guy ever. For some reason, he got into, you know, some bad stuff and chose to take his life. And so I saw a lot of, you know, that was sophomore year. So, his sophomore year, my junior year. So I saw a lot of. And there's also some imitation suicides after that. And so there were some, you know, you saw people go through these really, I mean dark cycles, but you're in high school and you're still trying to like party and be cool and right. you know, like not let anything bother you, and so that yeah that always really stuck with me because I you know I've got my own regrets for you know that whole situation, but um but and that was actually the story that I've written the first draft of it as a novel, which was when I went to graduate school in New York at the New School. I didn't get into UCL the first time so I went got an MFA in fiction writing I wrote the first draft of that novel at,
0: I mean at that point were you thinking I want to be a novelist was that the plan uh,
1: at that point I wanted to write novels and then adapt them and write them and direct them okay so Just it's like what, okay yeah, yeah I'll whatever. do whatever I can yeah, exactly okay yeah, yeah exactly that's that was the plan so was um, that one
0: trying to work through some of the feelings from the real life then I mean, totally. was it yeah, okay totally yeah. I
1: think that that sort of was the script that you know they they say a lot in film schools, you have to write your own story first to be able to write other people's stories, which I think is kind of true and kind of, you know, because again, you got to separate out all of those emotions that you felt, right? Because screenplay is about emotion and, mm-hmm. you know, all those kind of things. Like, how did you feel? What made you feel that way? Sort of, you know, what were the triggers and all that kind of stuff? So I think, yeah, definitely.
0: Do you think anyone can ever actually write somebody else's story, though? Or is it just a, you can disguise your own story a little bit better?
1: Oh, I mean, I think definitely because you can take the. I mean, you you, story is you know story is plot, story is a series of events. You know, so you can take the events of someone's life. I mean, you know, Patton is Patton's story, but it's you know Francis Ford Coppola's soliloquies. You know what I mean? It's his take on what Patton would have said. You know, so but yeah, I think you absolutely can. I mean, I think that's what you know documentary. You know filmmaking is all about
0: telling someone else's story yeah
1: you know what I mean like I've seen, there are very few great documentaries that are about the person making the film
0: that's true but yeah. I mean like just the, the your sensibilities though and I mean, your emotions and your anxieties I feel like always are gonna pour into even if you're telling somebody else's story
1: right? yeah but you got to remember too so many of those things are universal
0: okay do you know fair. what I mean yeah.
1: that's the thing that I think even just workshopping in general and and going through your scripts with other people helps you realize is like what I'm feeling right now and I think is my thing that I'm just not that this is the thing eat me up inside half the people in the room feel that's true you know I've heard you know I've heard major Hollywood producers Oscar Oscar winning producers get up and say I don't feel like I belong every day you know what I mean like I I just don't feel like I belong like that imposter syndrome sort of of thing total imposter syndrome so that and it happens at the highest level you know what I mean so I think once you kind of see how universal it is and it's like, okay, well, it's just, this is, this is just reality. So we'll just, you know, moving on, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but then again, there's, you know, different types of storytelling like the TV type stuff. You're not really getting into that. You're, you know, trying to make stuff look cool and blow up. You know? Right. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> well,
0: but okay. So you're at this point where you've done a lot of different types of writing and you, you always sort of had this view to write and then direct as well.
1: Yeah. And I kind of got, I kind of let the directing thing go for a long time just cause um, I wanted to learn
0: producing. Well, instead. so how did that happen though? I feel like so many people never give any thought to producing at all. I mean, it, so many people, unless they're directly involved in the film industry, have like a producer is just this like weird fictional job. It's like I don't know, does that person even do anything? Yeah. But like you, I mean, I, obviously you were interested in how things actually get made, right? But why producing? Why did that? Why well, did that hold I, appeal?
1: I got in. You know, when I went to when I got into the new school, um, I was. Got a job that January, my first job in TV in like 06, uh, in television, working on a reality show about cop shootouts, you know, kind of not politically <laughs> correct at all these days. But um, but
0: it was a job. And it, it was a that. job. Right,
1: was, okay. You know, And, you know, and I worked for these, cra- you know, uh, Donnie Brosco, the actual guy who's Donnie Brosco, was one of my bosses. Wow. Okay. Um, Joe stone He didn't, he was an executive producer. He didn't come in a lot, but he was, you know.
0: What was his style like when uh, you dealt with him, or did you?
1: I only dealt with him once because he had to come in and rob the other cop. You know, I, this other New York cop that I worked for was like, "Hey, Joe is coming in, and remember, the mob still has a hit on Joe, so Joe is a little nervous. So don't, you know, don't don't get <laughs> Joe riled up."
0: That's a pretty different world, I imagine, from what you were. It was a little weird, yeah. then yeah,
1: well, they, they kind of loved me because I was this, you know, kind of like Nebraska, you know, like all shucks kind of guy. And were like, you were you that kind of kid though? I mean, I mean. No, not around Nebraska, but you get yeah, there I was for sure. Oh, you know okay, what I so mean? Like it was definitely, you know
0: <laughs> a cynical person in Nebraska is an shucks person. Well, yeah, a... I mean
1: to a certain extent. I mean it's like, you know, cause you go from Nebraska I mean I mean you go like if you're in Nebraska in New York City, you're like 0001 percent of the population. Like you are like a strange bird. You know sure, what I mean? Yeah. And um but so anyway, so I was on the street and I saw him walking down the street and I was you know, he was looking and I about went, Mr. Justone over here, and I caught myself went oh, up. Uh, Kind of turn my back, let him find the building.
0: You're like, I might get him killed. Waited a little bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're in Midtown Manhattan. I don't know what's going on down. You know, there's no alleys, but that doorway over there. Who knows? You know, who's coming up and down there, and um, and yeah, and I let him go up, and but yeah, I just then I went upstairs, and he was sitting there, and Rob was like, "This is Mr. Joe Pistone," and I said, "It's an honor, sir." And he goes, "How you doing, kid?" You know, I'm like, "Oh, God, this is the best thing ever," you know, because I grew, I love you know you know. Uh, Mobster flicks, kind yeah. of flicks. I love that kind of stuff growing up too. Um, but uh, so then I just kind of worked my way up. I was a transcriber to start, which was transcribing interviews 40 hours a week. Do you I like remember.
0: doing that? No one does, yeah, I did a little bit of that uh, when I got my master's, I got in English, and we had took a couple linguistics classes, and yeah. we had to do transcript. I mean that was like hardcore linguistic transcription's terrible, I'm sure oh my I, gosh, I hope what yeah. you were doing was not quite as elaborate as that it you know? was,
1: yeah, it was transcribing cop, and it was this weird stuff started happening because a lot of the cops that we were inter- interacting with like had like deep southern accents, so I could actually tell what they were saying. The New Yorkers couldn't tell what they were saying. it was, it was this weird like. These weird, like, things that I never even thought about. Because, like, then I sort of, I started to get promoted a little bit because I could call up and get releases. Because I would sit there and be patient. I would sit there with the lady on the phone and go, how's the weather? You know, what's going on in Tyler, Texas? You know. Yeah. Is that a Nebraska skill? I think so, yeah. It's the absolute Midwest. It's a Central Time Zone skill, you know. I don't want to say it's exclusive <laughs> to Nebraska, but absolutely, you know.
0: We just we're we're more willing to go through the boring motions of things. Is yeah. that what it is?
1: Well, yeah, and I think too, like just the chit chat is just sort of you know like okay, you know. And I think if you interact with less people on a daily basis, it's it makes a little more sense, you know. But uh, but yeah, I told some of my actors when they came like, hey, don't worry, Nebraska. They'll just kind of look at you funny, but if you just talk, if you keep talking to them, they're super nice. I swear, you know. <laughs> Um, but so then I worked on a couple seasons of that show and got up to exec, associate producer and did some fun like got a PA like drive a cube truck in New York City uh, for Left Field Pictures, which they're the Pawn Stars guys. Oh yeah. Well, so okay. I knew the guys, those guys before they created Pawn Stars and a couple other Foglight Entertainment um, and a few other. Oh, I forget the name of it, but it was one of the first uh, digital branding agencies. Oh, I forget. But, um, but so like
0: you're in pretty much in the documentary TV or reality TV rather sort of yes. world at that point. Yep,
1: I'm in that world, and then I'm writing fiction. Okay, um, going to night class at uh, the new school, and you know, interacting with poets and um, other fiction writers. And so then I was there for two years and got uh, got into UCLA. Finally,
0: you had enough life experience that they liked it, or I you... think
1: so. I just I got to do an in person interview. I think my first phone interview was pretty pretty terrible to be honest. So was then, it
0: because you are nervous?
1: I think so. And I was unprepared and I was just sort of like, Oh yeah, let's do this now. I'm like, no, not, you know, cause I was like writing like at the computer, you know what I mean? Dude. Oh,
0: you're like multitasking. Yeah. Like, as Oh yeah, just,
1: you know, just knock this out real quick, you know? <laughs> um, but then I got to meet them and uh, Hal and uh, Richard Walter, who took over for Lou when he took a step back, um, in the early two thousands and, um, got to meet them and then got in. And so I decided I almost stayed in New York, um, but they are just like, you know, the rule is if you get into, like, UCLA or USC or AFI, you just got to go.
0: Is that because it's like you'll, you'll have some kind of future that'll look good to you if you go there? I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean,
1: it's not guaranteed. You know what I mean? At that time, it was a little more guaranteed because when I got there, then the recession hit. You know oh, what I mean? okay. So You're right. When it's like we, you know, like four years before we got there, people were getting signed for, like, million-dollar three-picture deals coming out of there. And the recession hit and just, boom, wiped out all. You know, that's why there's hardly any spec scripts that get, get made anymore. Because they, they wiped out that sort of It was, yeah, it was a really dark time to go to school. But, but
0: that happened after you had already gone there or started it there?
1: Started the second, my second, 2008 to start. this was the second year I was there.
0: So you're there with the optimism that it's like.
1: I showed up. I was, yeah, because I came back and when I was going to be home for the summer, I called up Dan Isky, who we'd done, we're in film school together and we'd done a, a web series in 2004 together. What was that one? Oh, it's called Evans America. It's okay. actually one of the only times I've ever acted.
0: How, how are you a good actor?
1: That is a subject of, that is a subject of uh, opinion in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and with that, just show you, we were doing a web series that was 45 minutes long and you had to download it on um, the old dial-up internet. Yeah. So, you get ahead of our time, you know. Yeah, when I was but,
0: a kid, I did, a, it was like a sketch show and I remember it's like you had to download the Windows Media Player file or whatever from yeah, the internet, Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think maybe YouTube was start I don't remember when YouTube started. I but-
1: remember exactly when YouTube okay, started in yeah. 2006 cuz we were in the production office and we were like look at this shit. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> you know, so I remember that distinctly. Yeah. Know, Google was 2005 cuz I was sort of the first generation to produce using Google. You know, cuz just think about, you know, try to find news articles. Right. Yeah. I mean, like it was like back then it was like it was like Lexus Nexus. That's like, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this hardcore like researching skills.
0: I remember like even when YouTube started it's like nobody was really on it right away it seemed yeah. like and it would take you know 2 hours to upload your mm-hmm. 10 minute video. Wasn't there a limit? It's like you couldn't upload more than 10 or 15 I minutes. I think so.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's weird. So, I mean, did you understand at that point like was it clear to you that this is going to change everything? No. No.
1: Okay. No, it just seemed cool. it seemed like a new you know, But then we all started talking about, well, we could get... That was when people started to get together, Like right? Even the guys that I was editing TV with, like, we could get together and make our, like, little episodes and, you know, do it for nothing. And so that's kind of when that real... I mean, the DIY kind of stuff that you see... So prevalent now. That's when that really kind of started.
0: Were you uh like inspired at all by the people who were just making things with you know cheap equipment or the cheap digital cameras? Even Linklater, he did a few, right? Tape yeah. and stuff. Yeah, well,
1: because we were doing. I mean, because when I moved back, I called Dan and and we. He said he was making a movie, and so I said, "What do I got to do to be a producer?" And he said, "Do the shit that I don't like to do." And I said, "Okay." So you know, I came back that summer and you know helped on set, and that was a real good. You know, that was a real great example of because we had a scary barn and we centered the story around that. It was a haunted farm because, yeah. you know, Dan had a farm. So we shot it all on his family farm and we shot, I think, Tuesday, Thursday at night and then Saturday and Sunday. That was the whole shoot? No, that was our schedule oh, for okay, like got six it, yeah. weeks. So right. we did like 20 some days, but we also did that so the actors could keep their day jobs. Right. You know, and everybody could kind of, you know, Still, it wasn't this all consuming thing.
0: You right. Know? It seems like in Nebraska, especially, first time filmmakers almost always gravitate to horror movies. Maybe that's true of every state. I don't know. I
1: think, you know, I don't, you know, I've never thought about it, but it could be, you know, I think that, but I think, I think horror is a great, because horror is great because you can, even in that scale of satire, but you can sell horror horror the concepts are easy to kind of get mm-hmm. you know in it sort of can disguise you know if you're bad at dialogue I was bad on purpose it's a horror sure movie. Yeah. you know what i mean so i think that there is something to that
0: i always felt like evil dead was one of the most influential movies just for everybody where it's like yeah there's just a bunch of kids like you can tell watching that movie a bunch of kids went to a cabin Yeah. I mean, they made a pretty impressive movie for being what they were, what they had. Yeah. Uh, Well, and
1: I love, too, like going back and watching, like, Halloween sort mm -hmm. of at that stage and deconstructing, like, how that movie's made and, like, oh, God, they made that for $100,000. Right. You know, shooting on film. Yeah. You know, probably that was probably a fifth of their budget was just the processing and film and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but yeah, so we made The Wretched, and then I went out to UCLA, and then that got into. Omaha Film Festival and a few others and we submit, you know, we tried self-releasing forever and, you know, but that was sort of like, okay, so that was, what does a producer do, right? That Mm -hmm. was, that was nine months of dealing with, with record labels and getting music rights and, you know. uh,
0: You were just self-teaching yourself as you went?
1: Yeah, I sort of had some blueprints. I had some, some idea, but see, I had already done the TV stuff, right? Right. So I knew how licensing went on TV. So I, you know, so I knew that every song that we bought off of this, platform got licensed and then you know so i was so in tv you learn about all those clearances and stuff like that especially when you do deliverables
0: right so you're very valuable then as a producer right because you knew the actual nuts and bolts of it i mean
1: a a certain extent yeah yeah for sure so that's the nuts and the bolts is how it gets kind of put together is that's again that's a lot of stuff that if you go out and do with your friends you don't you know you don't really need to do or think about but the minute you want to sell a product sell your film or you know, do all that kind of stuff. I mean, I the the film that we just shot in in Fremont. Uh, I mean, I'm I can't wait to start showing people the books of paperwork that uh, that Chad Bischoff put together on that because it's going to be like you know a couple thousand pages, right? Just documentations, contracts. You know, just all that, all the legalese.
0: And you do you like that part of it?
1: <sighs> I find it, no. It's just really. it's necessary. It's necessary. Yeah. You do it, yeah. And that's the thing that I think that you know, working in you know, having gotten back into TV after UCLA and, 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 you know, done a lot of independent productions there and sort of done commercials there. It's like, no, it's never fun. It's a job. You know what I mean? Like it's not, no, this is not fun. Like this is not the not fun part. And I think that that's sort of, I don't know, sort of a line where it's like, okay, what do we do now that it's not fun? You know, cause that's where a lot of people get into filmmaking cause it's fun.
0: I, I've rarely found, actually, like, it's invigorating, but it's always stressful and overwhelming. And I don't know yeah. if it's ever really that fun when you're in the middle of it, but there right. is something addictive about right,
1: it. Right, right. Well, I think there's people, too, like, I gravitate less towards physical production. I'm more like, I love development. I love post. Okay, yeah. You know, and I'll do the pre-production. I know. It's
0: easier to have control in those situations, isn't it? Or do you, do you agree with that?
1: Well, I think that it's, I mean... Sure, I think that it's easier to have control, but it also depends because it depends who's in control of the film and what. Sure. You're, you're also too. You're very limited in post with what you've already got.
0: I find that to be relaxing in a lot of ways. Yeah, because it's like, all right, at least I'm stuck with this.
1: Right, you get you get down to those A and B options. Right, you know, and that's something that I always you know harp on people is when we're making films. Together. This is a series of uh, A and B options. We have to make eight thousand decisions. Right, do you know what I mean? We have to figure out a lot of stuff out. So, can we stop with the him and and right away and just pick a good way to go and go that direction? Right, you know, because you can sit there and debate color temperature.
0: Every, I mean, every detail. Hours every yeah.
1: single detail. Yeah, and as a producer, I say, okay, you're in charge of that detail. Okay, you're in charge of that. Detail. Okay, you're in charge of that. Detail. Okay, you're in charge of that detail. You know, and that was again the fun thing about the, the movie we just did in Fremont was uh, having those departments and having those people and seeing. How they would bring it to the table, mm-hmm. because I wasn't part of uh, of Carol and and Brendan Derek's production design conversations. You, I didn't, yeah, I had no idea what the wardrobe was going to look like.
0: And you were okay with that? Was, yeah, because yeah.
1: I, you know, because there's a certain level where, when you, you know, I only want to produce for filmmakers that I think are really good and for filmmakers that I trust. You know, have good taste, have good skill, all that kind of stuff. And so I just was like, go, oh. you know, because when I was at UCLA, I. Worked with a filmmaker named Anna Lily Amirpour. Oh, okay, he yeah. Produced her first film. She was my buddy.
0: Was it this? Was would this be her short film or was the, this her feature? first
1: short film? Okay, it's called Six and a Half. It premiered at Slam Dance, uh, Milan, like thirty other festivals. Four lines of dialogue on the whole thing, three and a half minutes long. Um, but it was one of those things where she had the script she really wanted to make, and it was a childhood trauma memory, right? And it was about a little girl that you know. Blames a frog for getting hurt is basically the plot, and she showed it to all these producing students, who many of them now are big, you know, very successful people. But they were all sort of like, "Ah, it's too because it's a frog, it's animals, it's little girls." You know, everyone's looking for a reason not to make it. Why would it would be too right. difficult? And she was just kind of like, "Dude, will you make this for me or what? Will you make this with me?" And I was like, "Read it." And we were in class. We were in the we were in the class the, the the line producing class at UCLA, which teaches you how to make a movie, how to line produce, how to take a script, make a schedule, make a budget, and every little element of a movie. And she was she gave me about half an hour. She said, "Dude, are we doing this or what?" I'm like, "Sure, let's roll."
0: Could you? I mean, could you? grasp what was in her head at all I mean what it would look like or
1: oh yeah because it was a very clear script she she handed me a very very clear three or four page script that was you know I mean just visual yet concise this you know it just was really really good and I knew she was a really good writer at that time so
0: it's hard for me watching her movies to get a sense of what a script would look like for one of them you know it's like I have no idea if this, they, they all seem like they'd be really hard pitches to get people to wrap their minds around.
1: Well, they were. And it was funny how, because, you know, we, she made that and then made a series of three or four because she had a script that won one blue cat called The Stones, which was sort of set in Tehran because she's, she's Persian. She's, mm-hmm. she, you know, her family had to flee Iran and um, sort of, and we did this one really cool one. It was called The Book, Katab, uh, about a guy who, the process he needs to go through to get some porn. So he goes to a bookstore and he finds – he buys his extremist literature. And that's how they smuggle the porn. And so his family finds it. Like, oh, my God, you're going to become a jihadist. What is wrong with you? Like, And then it's just about him, like, you know, about that – Then she did some other stuff, like, with The Veil. Um, And then she was trying to write a pretty sort of, like, modern-day political dramas. And at some point she just said, you know, because no one was getting it. Like, oh, we don't want to make a movie in Farsi. Like, what is – you know that was you know people are a lot more woke now than they were back then, yeah. I mean, even ten years ago. Like it's pretty remarkable. But they're like, why would we ever make a movie in Farsi? Like, what could ever you know, what could the appeal of this be? So then that's when she kind of went the other direction. She's like
0: vampires need to yeah, be in this. And she's bed. like, okay,
1: you know what I mean? <laughs> okay, all right, Hollywood, I'll see you. I'll raise you. And then that's when she came up with the Iranian vampire western. And you know, I if I had, I probably would have had to drop out of film school to keep up with her because she was becoming so prolific. But um. Cena was was uh, who became a really good friend of mine, was my partner. She was his cousin, and he took over. And this other guy, Justin Bagnode, who's since gone home to Kansas City now, and is uh, producing movies in Kansas City, funny enough. Okay. Um, so yeah. then, and then that, and they went out in the desert. And they sort of, they, you know, and they really, too, that was one of those things. Is how do we get the most production value out of this $100,000 film? Well, they, they found this uh, burnt-out oil town in Central California that they could use and, you know, had this incredible postmodern landscape or a post-apocalyptic landscape Mm -hmm. that um, was just beautiful and stunning and, you know, they could do whatever they wanted. So,
0: I mean, with a movie like her stuff, she doesn't seem especially concerned with, will this have a lot of commercial appeal or go that far so much as like clearly she seems passionate and like she's having fun yeah Mm -hmm. with a lot of the people you were encountering was there much about i mean how much of it was like i want to make this cool idea versus i want to make something that will sell and appeal to a lot of people?
1: you know it was it was usually almost always one or the other okay there's very few people that were trying to thread the line and a lot of those people actually that could thread that needle ended up in tv oh interesting And 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 are wildly successful tv writers
0: that makes sense I mean, you know, in today's landscape with TV, anyway, you know,
1: it was it was either this is complete calculation of something we can sell, or this is a complete artistic experience that's gonna you know gonna be awesome. And I think Lily too. See, the Lily got an advantage; it was able to do that because she got into the you know the the Berlinale talent and Sundance Labs and all that kind of stuff. And if you can get into that sort of pipeline, then you're very you know you're much more encouraged and have better access to uh, the people that can help make that happen.
0: Were you more of the commercial minded or where were you at that point? Oh, what point is this? Cause I feel like even for you to be a lot of your interests in just like the sense of necessity, it's like, it's easier to try to do something that's an easy pitch or an easy yeah. sell. Um, but I don't know. I, I mean. was
1: still, I mean, I was, you know, I was writing at that point after I worked with Lily, I started really kind of writing You know, uh, really started to get into like noir and action type of stuff. And I kind of, that started at the, at the new school. I had a teacher named Robert Polito, who uh, was Jim Thompson's biographer. And he really kind of pushed me towards noir. And especially because he knew I wanted to do TV and film. And so that was actually what my thesis was at the new school was noir adaptation into film.
0: Like going from book to film? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I
1: did like Shoot the Piano Player of the Truffaut movie, which mm-hmm. is down there by David Goodis. and then the adaptation of Chester Himes' uh, R- Rage in Harlem. Okay which is the best book, ever, one of the best books have ever written, a terrible movie. <laughs> well, so it, it
0: was, I mean, it was about that process of what works in a noir book and what does or doesn't work in the film media. Yeah, and sort oh.
1: of translating that into cinematic story, literary storytelling and cinematic storytelling and the sort of old convention is the best way to adapt a book is to read it once and throw it away.
0: Because you don't want to be too much of yeah. a slave to it? Okay. Yeah,
1: because you get caught in the literary tropes and they're uninteresting in film and all that kind of stuff. But in these two... There's also an article that this guy Philip Lopate wrote that was based on it was kind of calling BS on that. And um, so I took and I showed like basically Truffaut remade down there, almost shot for shot. You know, there's a cultural translation going from Philly to France, but and that's a classic. And then Rage in Harlem is this thing that was made in the Hollywood system at the same time as Pulp Fiction. But it was just because it was everybody was involved. It became a mishmash, and it just wasn't very good. You know, the first you know the first scene of the book is a guy dressed up, a heroin addict dressed up like a nun, selling tickets to heaven in the streets of Harlem. You know, yeah, they didn't show that in the movie. <laughs> right, you know, they they changed they changed the character of Goldie just a little bit. Um, Who's was Gregory Hines' character? But um, but so I mean, I was you know. It, After film school, I I I ended up getting back into TV in LA and kind of, I won the screenwriter showcase.
0: For a script you'd written? For a
1: script I'd written at UCLA for a script called Simple Kind of Man, which I'm still, it was set in Nebraska, uh, still trying to get that one made too. Um, Got really close a couple of times with it, but- What's the pitch? Pitch is basically a a guy is, he works as um, a a, consultant, he's a lobbyist in DC in the ag lobby and he- Uh, He comes home to the farm after his dad dies in a farm accident and comes to find out that his brother is not only selling meth, but the state detectives are onto him and he's also playing a game of chicken with the cartel.
0: Oh, so it's a thriller. I assume. Yeah. It's,
1: it's, 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 you know, gunfights and you know, uh, yeah.
0: Was it, I mean, would you say that the shadow of Alexander Payne sort of going away and then coming back to Nebraska and filming movies, did that impact the trajectory you wanted to go in in any way?
1: I mean, I had always wanted to just make movies in Nebraska and you know do what he did originally, but. Um I mean, I think him coming back like recently, you I mean? Like, I don't know. Well, remember.
0: even just coming back to do, you know, I guess all coming his teachers here for the yeah. most part. for I mean, until he yeah. got to Sideways, I guess. I mean, yeah,
1: he's definitely an inspiration and in, in the way that he really sticks, you know, close to his roots. And it was so funny because, you know, like people were like, oh, Alexander Payne makes Nebraska look so bad, and you know? And then he made Nebraska. And it's like, I, because I heard him at UCLA because he went to UCLA as well. And mm-hmm. he, Came in and told our class how he fought for three years with with the, with the with the studio, the financiers, his producers to make it in Nebraska and make it in black and white. He had to cut his budget, I think, ten million dollars just to get that done. But he was that passionate about it,
0: right? And he kind of had the clout to sort of even fight for that, right? Well,
1: you, you know, he you know the only reason is because he had the descendants. You know, what I mean, and you think, oh, he's got all the clout in the world. It's like ah, you know.
0: As long as some of them make money, not as much
1: as you think. You know right. what I mean? Like that's the the, the dollars and cents really talk. Because I mean, you start getting into the incentives and all that kind of stuff, then it really, yeah, you know, film financing gets complicated in a hurry. But yeah, but I'd always wanted to make stuff and write stuff about you know stories here and growing up here, and I think that, um, you know, my twenty scripts, I think probably six of them are set here. A lot of them are like, you know, I did a Blackbeard historical when that was one of my first four that you asked about earlier
0: and I mean do you, are you still you still feel that connection to the first ones though I mean it's not like you don't feel um, like these were early ones and I've kind of moved to a different place or you still feel that impulse to try to like I want to figure out how to get this one out there
1: I mean I, I feel like I want to figure out how to make it a really good story you know I feel like the one of them the, the you know the boys are back in town one that um, that's had a lot of work done on it but the other ones in Blackbeard sort of I've done like six or seven drafts on that one um, but yeah, I still think that the the stories all have value. You know, whether or not I'll ever get back to them is—I—I mean, I,
0: I, I don't know. Right. You know? Well, like so. Okay. So when you—I mean—you got the MFA in filmmaker, and was it screenwriting? Or? Screenwriting. Okay. Yep. So, like, I
1: took all the producing classes. I got there and I realized, hey, they're gonna let me take all these producing classes. Okay.
0: Okay. And so, like, what what did you? I mean, what were some of the big takeaways? Like, what makes a good script?
1: I mean, a good script is 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 a is a good story well told that makes people feel something, you know? So, like a
0: good story, though. I mean, what is that? Does that need to have a certain number of acts? Does it need to look a certain way? I mean,
1: or? I mean, yeah. I mean, well, the thing is, the, yeah. I mean, stru- you just talk about like structure. I mean, yeah, sure, structure anything. is. Yeah, I mean UCLA they pound structure into your head because that's the only way you can become a professional screenwriter. In
0: the, but this, to, does that mean like to sell? Like you need, in order to sell a script, it has to have a certain structure. Is that what that means when it's like? It
1: means to like be to to have a. I mean. Yeah, I think you need to demonstrate in a in a proof of concept script that you know what basic film structure is. You know what I mean? Like if you don't, you know, if you get to page forty and your story hasn't started escalating yet, like you get tossed off the pile. You okay, know what I mean, so it's like there's yeah. So the structure needs to be there. I mean, it can be, you can cheat it, you can try to make, you can hide it. You know what I mean? A lot of you know, pulp fiction has a traditional film structure. You just told it in reverse order.
0: Right, yeah. Just
1: chopped it up. You know what I mean? It's a very basic story.
0: So, I mean, like, would you say writing is ultimately mathematical in a lot of ways then? it's like... I think
1: screenwriting. Okay. I think screenwriting at a certain point is mathematical. Um, I think because you've got the eight, you know, the three, three acts, eight, uh, was it seven, nine major plot points, the, you know, in the eight sequences um, are pretty, you can... Pre- you go you, you go down and you watch movies and you start really dissecting them and you see it's almost always there. It's just
0: do you ever find that that sort of takes you out of it though? it's like it it's discouraging in a way because it's like you, you want to. No. I was like I, I want to think there's some magical process, but I mean you do realize at so you're not point. rich
1: are you you, you, you know I'm so not rich you, yeah, see so you're not able to do everything you can do, right but see the thing is is like those constraints, right it's if you have a hundred million dollars to make your first movie, it's gonna suck. Because you can do whatever you want. Sure. Yeah. Right? So I think that screen, it's the same thing as that low-budget filmmaking. It's that those restraints, those within-the-box sort of thinkings is where the true creativity happens. And you also, too, like write a script or two with the perfect film structure and then go get creative. You know what I mean? So like you got to know the rules to break the rules. Right, yeah. You know, so I think that, that that doesn't discourage me at all because it's like I have that storytelling process. It's the same, you know, tick, you know, one, two, three that, you know, Aristotle talked about that exists in the Bible, you know what I mean? They're used in the oral tradition. It's like programmed into us. So it's like, you know, I work on documentary stuff. I love it because I can take any sort of story and then put it into that formula to get it started. See, that's just a starting place. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Those are just the bones of your script. You know what I mean? And then, so it's like, you know do you, do you get mad because you have short thighs and someone else has long thighs you know what I mean like you know what I mean it's like it's, I can, yeah it's just like yeah, you're in a bad you're, mood dad sometimes you're, someday, you're, so you're just, like you can just get a tattoo you know right, what I mean just yeah. get a tattoo you know so but that's <laughs> seriously like you then you then your story stands on top of that structure it's like Alexander Payne says is is the Mona Lisa a work of art or is the blueprint for the Mona or no I'm sorry the Sistine Chapel is the blueprint for the Sistine Chapel a work of art or is the actual Sistine Chapel the work of
0: art right because you have to actually do the process right the actual right. yeah
1: the actual you know thing. So I so I look at filmmaking as a craft and I think that's when you get into it more professionally that's you know it's kind of the same way a gaffer thinks about the lighting or the you know the production designer thinks about that. Yeah, it's an artistic endeavor, but there's certain craft that needs to go into it.
0: What would you say is the best screenplay ever written? Or even just the best written movie, I suppose.
1: I mean my favorite movie, I mean I think Network is pretty phenomenal. I think Patton Is up there. usual Usual Suspects is probably the best. Okay, maybe
0: in terms of the way it sort of hides certain things, but okay, Mm -hmm.
1: the way that it is aware of the reveals and the and sort of because that's the other thing you once you get past sort of okay, what's my main plot? Who are my characters? Then that's when you start to get into execution, Mm -hmm. right? When you start executing that plot and you say, okay, yeah, it's the way that he was able to misdirect you to think that it was Keaton this whole time and he set this up he set up the the, the 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 barbershop quartet in skokie illinois on the board he set that up but he threw your mind in another direction so you couldn't see it
0: so it's like that you can tell there's that sense of control yes. in it in that the because uh, what Christopher Macquarie wrote that one is
1: i think singer
0: did singer write it
1: oh man they're going yeah
0: i think Macquarie wrote it or i don't even have to say his last name honestly but I'll google this <laughs> I don't know if Singer actually writes. Does he? He just sits in a room. I mean, does bad things.
1: Just you know, he's a talented filmmaker. I'll, yeah, I'll say he's a talented <laughs> filmmaker. But um, I mean, so
0: it's like you can sense that it's like has enough of a you know of a clear idea what he's doing to be able to misdirect you, but also be entertaining along the way, be emotional and all that stuff. Just like to to pack so much into it is that mm-hmm. what's impressive to you in a lot of ways and just. I don't know. I mean, there's the craft, but also it's just like you have a good time watching it too,
1: right? Exactly. Yeah, it's enjoyable. It's well crafted. It, it 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 makes you say, "Oh, damn!" Like it really surprises you. You know what I mean? Yes, right. Christopher McQuarrie. You know, okay. Right? Yes. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think that it's just sort of, and again, like, how well did you tell the story that you want to tell? Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of that's another thing. Is it's you know what is the script trying to be? you know and what is it trying to achieve you know and sort of
0: what would you say that one's trying to achieve
1: what usual suspects yeah it's right it's a classic kind of noir mystery built modern day at that time los angeles i mean Mm -hmm. it's sort of a you know it's a it's a true crime caper it's a whodunit you know it
0: and it's just it's a really well done version of that even though it's sort of like an older trope right
1: yeah, they're all older tropes, yeah. That's true, yeah. people Citizen, like Citizen Kane was a rip-off, dude. Every shot in Citizen yeah. Kane is ripped off, <laughs> you know.
0: Is that comforting to you to know that? Because it's like, does it free you to try things that other people have tried and just do your own thing with it? I mean, it's like, yeah. I don't need to have to reinvent the wheel. I yeah,
1: guess. absolutely. Yeah, I think that reinventing the wheel is not the way to make a business out of anything. You right. Know? Unless you, you know, unless you got a bunch of startup money. But <laughs> us filmmakers don't get that, you know. Yeah, that goes that goes to million dollar uh, uh, websites that you know never see a nickel, but you know whatever we can. Well,
0: so you're in Los Angeles then. So you went back into TV in Los Angeles. You said,
1: yeah, I went back into TV kind of through my New York connections and worked at a company called Base Productions and worked on. I got back into transcribing because there's there's this weird L.A. New York divide in TV where you have a hard time with New York credits getting jobs in L.A. Okay. And so you kind of have to take a step back to get back in. So I got back into transcribing and gosh, I probably worked on 30 shows then in about eight months. It was great. Cause I could do it from home. Oh yeah. Okay. And by that time I was such a fast typer that I figured out what the average e- input was, you know, how much, how much do you want me to do a day? Okay. You want three tapes. Okay. I'll do four. Well then I could do that, you know, in five hours. And then sort of free up three more hours to work on my own stuff. And, and
0: that was writing screenplays, or what was that?
1: Yeah, I write screenplays. And I was also, too, at that time, I had I was tutoring kids in South Central, because, again, this was during the recession, so there weren't a lot of jobs there. So I was tutoring kids. Um, and then I was also, my buddy worked at Lionsgate, so I was reading scripts for them as a script reader and for what is that, script pipeline. Does
0: that, script reader does what exactly?
1: Script reader, basically, they write, um, they, they synopsize and evaluate projects so you get a script and you write the most important part of what you do is the synopsis and um, this is where ba- you know this, you basically synopsize the film which is writing what happens on the page uh, you know as, as as it develops and then so then that way the executive can take this hundred page script read a four minute summary and say oh I like that ooh that sounds good or, eh.
0: How do they know to trust you with that? I mean, obviously you have the degrees for it, but there's, then they just... but
1: there's, there's a great layer. I mean, there's, they, they, they don't know a lot of times at the beginning, they test you because they give you by your pass. May. Yes. No, maybe basically. And if you give them a couple, no, yes. And maybe scripts that they don't like they're like this, you know, get out of here. You know? So I, I made that mistake as an intern. I interned for a, a big producer and, um, you know, passed on a script I thought was really cool because it was a Stephen King adaptation of a book that I love, but it was a crappy script. Okay. They're like, why did you waste my time with this? You know, so they kind of, it's sort of the same way as like with, with getting the coffee, right? You start off getting the coffee. Mm-hmm. Why? Because if you can't get a coffee order right, how are you going to produce TV?
0: Okay. Journey, so okay. It's,
1: And that's kind of the mentality that they have. So you give them these little menial tasks and then um, – and, and then you kind of build up for that. But see, my friend that was a, at Grindstone, he, um, he knew me and really trusted my taste and knew that I was a good, so he, I, and he was usually getting, a lot of times it's interns that do this that are still an undergrad or whatever. So he was really relying on me. I would give him a lot of notes that he would then use in pitch meetings and say, well, what if we did this or did that? Because I remember one time I, I just would bag, I bagged a script and he's like, thanks man, appreciate the notes. This, we really need these. I'm like, well, why is that what goes into production next week? Wow. You said usually undergrads do this job? A lot of times, yeah.
0: Does that depress you? No, no. No. (laughs) Undergrads choosing what movies get uh, potentially made?
1: No, 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 okay. I don't, no. You're a more optimistic person. I just, I am, you I know, guess. there I was. Know. I mean, I, you know, my, my 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 grand my grandpa my grandpas were farmers, you know. So I look at it all. as was like, ah, beats beats field work, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, but like you want to think it's all these seasoned, you know, people who really know what they're doing, picking all this well, stuff.
1: Well, but you also got to remember too; they're at the point where they're getting a thousand screenplays and got to whittle it down to like five or six. So if you can't sure. pick up a screenplay off a pile and see that it's got something to it, that it's probably not going to get through. Cause you got to remember that person has, you know, my friend that, why did that movie get made? Well, cause 50 cent liked it. Sure. They're making yeah. 50 cent movies. And so like there's always going to be someone pushing buttons somewhere else, you know, some producer who, and there is a lot of that nepotism stuff, the producer's best friend who bailed him out of jail, but won't tell anyone, you know what I mean? That kind of stuff does happen. And so, you know, to get, that's why, And again, that's why I wanted to get into producing to kind of mm. make it happen so undergrads on,
0: could give you scripts. What'd on you my
1: terms. Well, I did have, I had an intern with all yeah. this last film, so I was very excited about that. He got through his intern hours in three days.
0: How many hours was that?
1: 45. Okay, wow. And then we, <laughs> then we hired him, then we hired him as a PA, so.
0: <laughs> well, um, so when when did things start to look good then? It's like, you know, you're kind of at that.
1: Oh, I think TV was looking good. TV was good. And then once I got into TV, but I, then I got out of that and started teaching for a while. I taught in L.A. What or, were you teaching? Screenwriting okay. and then I also created a documentary storytelling class um, at the New York Film Academy in Burbank.
0: Was that teaching documentaries that had been made or how to make documentaries? How to make documentaries. Okay. I
1: was teaching documentary film students in conjunction with their directing, producing, cinematography, editing classes. Okay. And so that was sorry. That's great. And so that was um so that was great because they basically said, Okay, we need a screenwriting professional that's got documentary experience and I had done T V and I was working with Ken on my life in China at that point and had been hired to assist and edit a bigger documentary with him. And so I was like, ah, I'll do it, you know, sort of that, you know, I'll raise my hands. So I figured that out. So that was really cool, cause I um, got to meet a lot of cool students with that and uh, just kind of figured it out on the fly, taking those screenwriting principles into documentary. Because when I had worked on this other film called Bear Trek for this guy named Billy McMillan, who's an Oscar nominated uh, doc filmmaker, he was a sound guy first and so then he had become an editor and then now he was a writer and then becoming a director of documentaries so that was cool to learn his process cuz it was the exact opposite of my entry as a writer right yeah right he oh, he has always come oh, crap sorry <laughs> it's okay he, i'm gesturing too much um he had always dealt with what existed as it was as a sound guy as a post guy where i was you know writers make stuff up you know what I mean so that was so once I figured out too that that, this is sort of something that not a lot of people know how to do you know there was only like one there's only one good book on it really which is what Uh, it is a documentary storytelling by Sheila Bernard Curran
0: and you, did you, were you taught with that book or did you stumble no, into it? No, I
1: found that book. I found the first edition and started teaching with it at NIFA. And then I actually, I taught a podcasting class at UNO this year. Oh, really? And used that book. And um, and yeah, and then I actually went back and taught Eyes on the Prize because she was one of the filmmakers that did that and taught a couple of the books that she references. Um, so yeah, so that was cool. I think there's probably other more, but that was, you know, shoot. Seven years or six years ago, okay, when I was there. Um, so then that's when I started working on My Life in China with Ken, and also, too, about this time, we got an offer seven years after it was made to distribute The Wretched. How
0: did that happen? How did they like that because much later?
1: There's this very smart guy named Jesse Beje who runs Ruthless Studios, and he figured out because of the recession, there were all these really good horror movies that were made in like 2007 to 2009 that were sort of at the advent of this, I call it the, the 5d revolution, which is the 5d camera, the DSLR cameras making okay. right, everything look good. Yeah. You know, so now everything looks good. So, but because of the recession, they just weren't bought. And so he went back and was buying, and was taking movies, changing the name and then re- changing the trailer, changing the music and then reselling them.
0: So yeah, like a new movie. Then.
1: Yeah. So it's funny in Amazon, if you go, cause it's now called fields of the dead. And okay, so if yeah. you if you go on Amazon and see Fields of the Dead, there will be comments where people are like, this is just the wretched from 2007. <laughs> but it's funny because that means someone got on an IMDb and clicked around long enough to see the similarities. So I was like, okay, well, at least you watched it long enough. Yeah. To, and you guys, um, you
0: made some money off of it then?
1: We did. We sold it outright to them. And um, we did. We, we, we doubled our production budget. And um, so that was really good.
0: I mean, six years after. And we'd, were... made a,
1: we'd made a few grand selling DVDs and stuff like that back in the day.
0: It's got to be nice, though. It's like, you know, you kind of feel like, well, we saw that as long as it was going to go. We got as much out of it as we probably were yeah, willing to. And yeah. then now this. And that's
1: what I do as a producer. That's what I harp up. Just maximize the footage you have, is the stuff that you have, and take that each movie to the limit. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Take it as far as you can. Because then, see, then we've also licensed some shorts to him now. And then making horror compilations. Oh, nice. Okay. And so, and now he's looking for animation. So I'm kind of, you know, poking my head around for anybody that's got animated shorts around, you know, because, but so that was kind of interesting that that, um, that that just kind of came up. And two of the movies that I've done with them actually got on Redbox. Oh, nice. Which has been really cool. Um,
0: do you get residuals from the rentals on that? You or? know,
1: we don't for Fields of the Dead because we had to sell it outright because there's just a whole bunch of technical... You shoot something in 60i interlaced in 2006 on a Sony HD2 or whatever. and You got some post issues. Because yeah. you know, this was before the standards were set for iTunes. Okay, yeah. Right? This before the codecs were written. Sure. So the only way that he could make it worthwhile to do all that extra work was to buy it. But... Uh the one um demon, which I actually wrote one of those horror shorts, uh, is my buddy's thesis film at UCLA, that I had them getting residual checks for that. So nice. that, that's really cool. Yeah. Um and That's then, like
0: you it's like you're making it in that sense, you know. It's like yeah, residuals it's, is its yeah, own step. That
1: whole yeah, it's like wow, I get a, I got a you know, I got a two hundred and ninety one dollar check the other you know, last month that I didn't expect. I'm like, wow, this is great. <laughs> you know, but uh so then my life in China, uh that 2014 is when we hit the film festivals in that December, 2014. And that was an interesting process because Ken, who I'd met in New York working and he'd eventually moved out to LA. That was his personal story that he took his dad back to retrace his immigration steps to China. And he won a Guggenheim fellowship for, and, um, had really hit a wall, um, kind of all his creative collaborators were still on the East coast and, some of them had left the business, and so he was kind of alone, and so he asked me to, to come in and help him write voiceover. And of course, the ironic thing is, if you watch the movie, it doesn't have voiceover.
0: But he found that you had other skills that would be useful, or well, you, or it you was, found it? Well, it
1: was the sense of discovery. It was, we tried to write this voiceover forever, and, and we did it for like a year, and then finally we got a note from a guy, and I had also been programming at Slamdance, as okay. a documentary film programmer for a number of years. Uh, probably started in 2011, I think, and 2010, maybe. And, um, and so I'd seen a lot of documentaries and stuff like that. And, and, you know, we had some good friends on the festival circuit. And one of them, a guy by the name of DeWitt Davis, that programs at uh, Doc NYC, he sent Ken this note. And I just remember this email. It's like, damn it, Ken, stop stepping on me with this stupid VO and telling me how to feel, and just let me feel. That's a, that's got to be an amazing note to get, right? That was an amazing note, right? Because you just in your head, I just saw you're like, oh yeah, that... Well, yeah, so it's, it's one of those, like that means that what you have
0: is good, mm-hmm. also. Yeah. If you don't need the extra prompting to feel things, right. that means that what you have is working.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. So what we did is, and we, and again, we have a, a grown Chinese man crying on screen, like that doesn't happen. You know, what I mean, we have like this, it, we have footage inside communist China, right? That we just got. He just snuck in as a tourist. You know what I mean? Like we have stuff that no one else has. So I knew it had all the. Bones, but so then we said, okay, let's take out the voiceover, and that's see that's another thing of the story of the writing and the story editing coming back in, because that's what we call it in docu in TV is story editing, story okay. producing, um, because the unions and you can't call them writers, That's a whole other deal. But um, but so then we went and we said, okay, this narrative device of voiceover is not working. Let's pick a new narrative device, and we used something that Ken had been trying to get away, which was his dad and his family members lecturing him. Because they would just turn to him and start talking to him. You know, he goes, pretend like I'm not here, pretend like I'm not here. They, they would just talk to him. So we decided to use that to kind of put the reader, the viewer in his shoes. Mm-hmm. It makes it much more personal. And then we also took his dad and made his dad the narrator, right, and just used that as a principle. We had his dad narrating, but then we also saw the scenes. And then we said, okay, so what are we missing from this voiceover narration that his dad or no one else says on screen, then we put that stuff into text on screen at strategic places, sort of. Nice, and, and you, we did that in Ken's first-person voice.
0: Okay, and you were able to figure out what it needed. Essentially, that's one of the skills you were able to bring to it.
1: It wasn't even it, it was it was it's it's not what it needed. It's it's what needed to be taken away. Okay, what uh, do you that, polish okay. on the stone? So you're able to recognize what, and also to the outside value of again because when you write. He's making something that's so ingrained in his family and his culture and all this kind of stuff. Because the first time I watched it, I'm like, Ken, you know what this movie's about, right? He's like, what? I'm like, the American dream, dude. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, the whole, you know, the immigrant shows up, gives his kids the opportunity for education. That guy grows up. His kid becomes rich. His kid becomes spoiled. That kid ruined, you know.
0: So it's back to that idea that the personal can be universal.
1: Yes, 100%. And because he wasn't thinking in that, because he wasn't, you know, again, he wasn't a white guy from the Midwest who grew up reading F. Scott Fitzgerald. Right. You know what I mean? He grew up on, you know, in Boston, you know, and so, and so he grew up in a different culture and all that kind of stuff. And so he didn't, in a different focus, right? He wasn't reading all those nerdy books when he was 10 and 11. He was out playing stickball and making skateboard videos or, you know, but, um, but, you know, doing, doing stuff that those cool city kids do or you know what I mean like yeah, it just yeah. and so he just didn't and also too because you, you get so close to your face right it's like why are people so good at critiquing other people's movies but not making their own better because it's easier to critique other people's stuff because you've got that removal you know what I mean and so just the fact of that removal and having that creative partner I think really it just allowed me to pull out like you know because there's like a line in the first act of the movie that says he feels like he feels like he filled with the American dream and it's devastating Mm -hmm. you know but that line I don't know if would have been in there if not for me you know saying hey this is because it's a great framing device you know it's like a lot of times you talk about in documentary how you can take the micro and make it affect the macro you're telling this little story but it's about all of America it's about you know Right, yeah. the way that you can, you know, the out. If you've seen, did you see Out of Omaha at?
0: No, I meant to see that. I still want to see doc. it. Amazing yeah. doc.
1: There was a little disingenuous, and they said Grand Island is only four percent African American. Yes, that's true. It's also you know, forty five percent white, and there's lots of you know, eighteen different cultures there. But whatever. you know, Sure. Yeah. But again, those are the, the out of state <laughs> filmmakers. Um, but I tease, but but that's an amazing movie. That was a great movie, and that kid's one story, that guy's one story of coming of age. You know, being from where he's from in North Omaha, that one story is just indicative of all the larger, the larger problems that North Omaha has and America has, you know what I mean? Right. So yeah. that's sort of, um, something you're always striving for. So once we found that, then we started to get some film festival success. Uh, we sort of, we didn't, we, we should have held off for a bigger, you know, big splashy festival, but, um, we sort of started with San Diego Asian film festival and, uh, Florida Film Festival, and then won awards. We went to like ten or eleven festivals. Um, did really well in the Asian American festival circuit, and um, but then again, continued to have to you know reassure the you know it's okay to get rejected from these film festivals. No big deal, right? Um, yeah. And then eventually we we got um, a, a really unique airline distribution option through someone that I met, um, and then got the film onto um, America Reframed which is um, put on by World Channel on PBS. Um, it's the same folks that put on POV and um, some of the other big documentary programs for PBS, sort of a newer venture that they have. And so that was great. Got a you know national TV premiere and-
0: Yeah. Really, you know, I mean, success.
1: Success, yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely.
0: And so what's the new one that you just filmed?
1: The new one we just filmed is called Le Flamme Rouge. Okay, and this is a horror movie? It is a psychedelic nightmare. <laughs> okay. And this is a script. Um, this is not my movie. This was this was written, directed, and conceived by the Mays brothers. Uh, Brent and Derek Mays. They live in Lincoln. Um, Brent's a Johnny Carson film school grad. Derek went to the J School. There is even Fall City, uh, which is um, which was actually the actors thought was really cool like you guys are brothers from small town nebraska no way um and it is something that you know i because i come back a couple years ago and really wanted to get back and la was just getting stale and i was kind of getting to a point where you know if you don't have a hyper specialized like resume like you know even as like a tv producer i have three years experience producing tv like to get like a tv job now like you have to have like eight credits in home renovations you know set in the south during night you know specific very specific very channel you know what i mean and like you know trade out producers what's a trade out producer what's a guy that gets free stuff or gets sponsorships like i've done that but i haven't done it for a while and so there's a guy that's done that 20 times in the last two years so he's getting those jobs so it's kind of you know what no one no one really wants to hire me anymore unless it's just like screen you know for a higher screenwriting jobs or
0: you did that didn't appeal to you
1: it does, but it's just it's too few and far between, oh, okay. you know. And sort of a lot of flaky documentary projects, you know, like some some lady or some guy has gone and shot something, and they want to make a documentary but don't want to do the hard work. They'll, you know, they pay you to sure. do the first step, and then it all falls apart. Because I have a friend that my friend Al, I think he's worked on like twenty. I think he he makes his living making documentary sizzle reels that never go anywhere. But, but not, he makes a living. It's you know? not because of him. It's because of the people that. Oh, okay. That's what, you mean, you know yeah. what I mean. You know what I mean. Um and so uh so yeah, so I was just I was just at the point where I was like, okay, I'm gonna start creating my own projects. I'm gonna do the stuff of my own volition, and that's when the Xarvin documentary came up mm-hmm. and that's kinda how I met Brent, was I hired him for the initial um d- development shoot, had like four or five shooters on that one, did a couple days at Horseman's Park in Omaha. Yeah. There, there is still horse racing in Omaha. Most right. people don't yeah. know that. Um but uh and then i just really gravitated towards him as just because he was just a young hungry guy who was you know appreciative fun to be around talented and sort of understood you know the dynamics of how the you know the industry works and so i just started hiring him for all my stuff back here and i've been kind of building a company to do uh to do like marketing videos and stuff like that based in fremont so i hired him for some of the first ones of those and then he started kind of bringing Derek on board because Derek had quit his job in marketing and they were working together full-time doing a lot of music videos. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got a couple of music videos that have several million hits and we've um, got to work with some really good labels. And so we started all working together and really, you know, then Dick, Brent or Derek started doing a lot of the editing and the motion graphics and stuff. And they ended up being the ones that helped me get the short film of the Exarvon project together um, that's going to film festivals now. And uh, I, need
0: to, I need You need to send me that, too, because I did, I want to watch uh, that movie when I can hear it. I couldn't hear it at the film festival we were at Oh, before, yeah, that's so. right. That's right, yes.
1: Yeah. The, we we do work on the Lincoln, uh, the, the sound component. At yes. That, at the fest. But that's a great fest. That's a great environment. Right, yeah. Just need to get, like, those little drive-through speakers or something.
0: Yes, yes, definitely. We'll talk. We'll, we'll, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out.
1: We'll call, we'll call them. Up. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and so they came to me about a year ago and just said, hey, Aaron, we've got this script that we really, really want to make, and we think we found some people that will we'll invest what do we do? Will you help us? And I was kind of like, yeah, sure. Cause I just, you know, kind of, they were, you know, the type of guys that I wanted to, to just work with, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of, it, and again, knew they were talented all that kind of stuff. It felt like, you know, they'd done some favors for me you know they're smart enough to do some favors for me. And so, you know, building up that favor bank and I was like, okay, well sure. You know, and kind of like took it, like I you know, gave them kind of a step at a time to do like, okay, so build a, build a schedule. Okay. Now let's look at a budget. Okay. Right. Now let's. Okay. Now I'll go get some comparables where we can, some sales estimates from certain people that I know and look that kind of stuff. And then, this is how we set up the the, the tax rebate. This is you know there's then they have the the film incentive that in Fremont that I've helped uh, that I helped Stacy and the ENFO and the city set up. Um, really took an interest in that because when Fremont became the one city in Nebraska you can make a movie with an incentive in. That's my hometown. Right. Yeah. That's when the pieces really started to fall together. Like, oh, I could, I could go back.
0: Then it got. Off, then this movie got this. off the ground, and it actually happened. Right? Yeah,
1: and then yeah, because then we had these these, these executive producers who, um, I just they took off the, they took off the NDA of us. So I can say that Collins Okafor and Amir, Amir Abdullah former Huskers, uh, were the first guys that, um, put money in
0: the Nebraska project through and through. And
1: then, yeah. And then the rest of investors are people that, you know, you know, family, friends, and people that were, you know, uh, you know, people that they, that they've known their whole life or, you know, that have someone that they know who works for this person and brought them in, you know, um, and then also too, I was able to get them set up on the incentive and get them set up on the, the federal, uh, federal tax deal. So that, you know, shields your investment and makes it a good investment. And, um, and then of course, you know, the money get, I think we you know, took, once they said they were in, it took a few, few months to get the money in the door. And then, cause we were originally going to shoot like in November. And then I had known Clint Howard had done a talk in Lincoln with Colby Coash. And he had said, if you have a script that you lot want to do, I'll do it. Sent it to him and said, hey, would you be interested in this? And he kind of said, hey, if you guys will ever get your stuff together, yeah, I'll do it. Nice. And then so I think it was February or March, we started looking at the other actors. And um, you know, through a combination, of we used a casting director. These two women, Heidi Levitt and Lisa Essary, are amazing out of Los Angeles. And then also the guys really successful direct messaging some actors, stuff like that, which blew my mind um but because that was there's always the hardest part is people think the hardest the hardest part is not getting together the money it's the hardest part is convincing a really really good actor that your director is worth a crap if, i mean if they're not proven
0: you mean like if yes. they haven't done right. yes yeah, if okay. they don't
1: have a feature to show or something like that right. and that's always the hardest part that's where i've gotten stuck on like my simple kind of man script before and a couple different iterations and you know trying to get other stuff made it was always it came down to the direct but, but for some i mean these guys they just i think for the same reason that they impressed me they impressed everybody along the way and mm-hmm. you know a lot of you know even some of the people are like how old are these guys <laughs> like they're mid 20s you know what i mean like cuz they just couldn't believe you know so they just really did a great job uh, selling themselves and selling their script and we ended up then all of a sudden uh, Balthazar Getty his, yeah. his name showed up which I was looking at the IMDB page and I was yeah. I was
0: impressed by the cast that we that you guys have
1: yeah so then once Balt got involved it was like whoa
0: what's the movie called again what how do I it's say it's
1: La Flamme Rouge
0: La Flamme Rouge okay it, it means
1: right. the red flame in French so okay. it's the yeah. name it's the end of a race of, of, of a cycling race okay so yeah. the main character Rick Van Pelt that Bolt plays is an ex-cyclist who's been injured okay and has a really really bad
0: well, I look forward to seeing what happens with this movie and actually thanks. getting a chance to see it.
1: Yeah, thanks. I was really excited because it's sort of like we, we you know got this incredible, when Bulk got involved in his production company and his management company are both co-producers, and so they bring a whole other level of, you know, because I brought on Chad Bischoff and uh, his company and Eric Hover to, to do the line producing, and then they're actually going to be able to help. It was great because I hired Chad to line producing and they actually have a good sales track record. Nice, yeah. So I knew once it got made that we wouldn't have any trouble selling it. But now, so we've got this amazing public, publicity arm from Bolt just being who he is and having the track record that he does and they're very excited to, you know, uh, promote it. So it's sort of like this weird, like, I have like a list of stuff I can't talk. You know what I mean? Like I can't talk about. Like, Whoa, this is weird. You know what I mean? Like three it's months a, ago, I would have told you everything. But it's a fun place to be in, though. It's I'm sure. a really yeah. fun place to be, and it's a fun place to be in a place where I did it in 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 Fremont, USA. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. And and you know proved a lot of naysayers wrong <laughs> in, in three different time zones. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so and and it was the the, the and so I always knew that Derek and Brent were going to be nails. I just knew they were going to be good. You know, the same way I knew with Lily, and I've known with other people that I who are great filmmakers, but what really impressed me was the, like the crew that showed up and, and on all these Johnny Carson film school kids. Right. Um, some of them have gone to LA, some of them are still here, but to see the way that they work, like someone came on to help me later on in the movie. And he was like, aren't you nervous that everyone's like 25 years old on this crew? I'm like, no dude, look at him. Like, look what they're doing. You know what I mean? They're not even talking, but they're all just like, cause Brent will like, look at the the Zach Trout, the gaffer and they'll like give him the headshot. And then he'll like, you know, on this is microphone and then two minutes, two seconds later a clamp will show up it's like and, a
0: well oiled machine.
1: Yeah, it was it was like freaky from like a production <laughs> sense because you couldn't get ahead of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Usually production you want to be ahead of the people making the movie so you can like I don't know set up craft services or you know what I mean just like yeah. stuff like that. And but it was really I mean because again I'm like you know being a TV producer you know you the job gets done every single day or you don't have a job so. Right. I, you know, am a, am a nut about like timing load ins and load outs and stuff like that. But I mean, I, we averaged like four, it was like 45 minutes between call time and the first shot, which is insane.
0: Yeah. I think it's a, it's a great success story and it's amazing. I think it kind of brings your whole journey full circle and then we'll see what happens from here. But uh, I'm really excited about it. And I just want to thank you for talking to me about it today.
1: Thanks. Thanks. Absolutely.
0: Riverside Chats is hosted by me, Tom Noblock. I produce the show along with Ben Matukowicz through our company, Exarvin Creative. We're housed in Studio 62 in the headquarters of BFF in Benson, Nebraska. To support our show, you can always head on over to our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash There are various tiers of giving. We appreciate anything you feel is worth your amount, your dollar amount. And beyond that, we appreciate your time. If you are listen, listening this far into the show, you've made it to the end of another Riverside Chats. We'll be back next week talking with Mary Oliver, who is an actress and playwright, interested in telling military stories with her writing, and has acted in the action film Level Up as well as a number of plays. So stay tuned for that. Please subscribe to our show wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review. We always appreciate that. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening.